Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Friday, October 28th, 2011, and this is episode 773, and I've titled today's episode Paleoculture, the Original Permaculture. So, not a feedback show today. We're going to talk about permaculture from the paleo perspective, uh, which I think will be interesting, and I think we can explore some things, and I think maybe I can clear some things up uh, that I think were misconstrued about what I'm trying to say the last two times I talked about the paleo lifestyle. Uh, obviously, I very much believe in it. I've shed 75 pounds, not 71 uh, at this point now, so I've continued to, to shed the unwanted X's from my you know XL's. Um, and I feel a lot better and a lot healthier, so obviously I'm excited about it. I've, I've come to certain things that I definitely believe to be true based on the research, the science, and the results, and I'm very zealous about that. That doesn't mean I want to tell you how you should live. So I think today's episode will focus on permaculture more than paleo and just bring the paleo aspect to it, and a person that wants to live you know, a vegetarian lifestyle would be able to use everything we're going to talk about today. So I think it crosses the spectrum. I also think we're going to go into some things about local economies, uh, stability, sustainability, and not in some eco-hippie way, but sustainability from a standpoint of sustaining ourselves in hard times. Uh, I believe that permaculture is survivalism, and survivalism, when pr- done properly, is permaculture. The word means permanent culture. So strap on today. We are going to get into this, and we're going to really get into it deep, and we're going to talk about it from some angles that we probably have never done so before, trying to bring you some new variety and bring two subjects that may seem to be very separate from each other together. That's how we create new thoughts and learn new things. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, HarvestEating.com, the illustrious Chef Keith Snow. Hey, I mean, I'm going to talk to you about all kinds of stuff you can grow today and buy from your local economy and and put down on your plate. But if you really want to know how to cook it and cook it and make it awesome, check out HarvestEating.com, Chef Keith Snow. Check out his seasonings. I'm going to talk a lot about beef today. And actually, not a lot about beef today. Beef something you, you, if you don't have enough land, it's something you're probably going to be buying for a long time, uh, hopefully from a local supplier. But you want to make a piece of beef really awesome, get his steak seasoning. Oh, my God. It is the most awesome uh, seasoning I've ever used in my life. I use it all the time. Next up today, silverandgoldshop.com. That's Mary Beth Maidmont, the only person who I've ever worked with in the silver and gold industry who, when I hear back from people who bought from them, use this word, wonderful. I really never understood that until I started buying silver and gold from Mary Beth myself. Absolutely first-class product, absolutely first-class customer service. And it's, she's a person that when you deal with her, if you have to call her, ask her a question, or she has to sort something out for you, you're going to realize she absolutely cares about her customers. That's exactly what I'm looking for in a sponsor. And then silver and gold, folks, especially silver, Christmas is coming. Thanksgiving is coming. You're going to be traveling or family are going to be traveling to see you. You're probably going to see kiddos that you only see a few times a year. And you have a choice if you're going to be giving them some sort of a gift. You can give them some plastic piece of crap made in China that, you know, I'm not bashing China there. I'm just saying that's what it really is. And they might enjoy it for a little while. Or you can put something into their little hand that will last for a very long time and continue to grow in value just the way that they will if they continue to educate themselves and grow and develop as a human being. And you can explain that connection to them. That would be a pretty cool thing to do. And I'll promise you, if you hand them a piece of silver this Christmas, they'll still have it next Christmas. If you hand them something plastic from Mattel, odds are it won't see summertime. Just saying. So it's something to think about. And remember, I think for you yourself personally, silver and gold should make up 5 to 10% of your total net worth in your investment portfolio and your diversification of assets. Next up, remember, you can connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Videographer is up running hard now and, and got things sorted out from a technology standpoint. We'll be coming over the house on Friday, or Saturday, and I will be shooting some video with him, including uh, the stuff we need to wrap up, the stuff on the Hugo culture beds. I've got some cover crops I'm going to be turning 
coming in. I've got a few plants that I planted that are doing fairly well that we'll add to that, and then we'll put that video out on how we actually build those hugo culture beds. Uh, also, you can connect with uh, us on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network. We're over there now at PrepperPodcast.com with a lot of other great podcasters. Check them out. They have a Stitcher app where you can uh, stream whatever's on Prepper Podcast Radio Network live at all times. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, and you support the show at 20 cents an episode. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, well, if you email me first with the details of your service, active duty or prior service, I will give you a special service discount uh, to recognize you for your service to our nation, uh, either at home or abroad. Real, real quick, last but not least, if you want to participate in the zombie show, uh, you need to get that to me today. I probably won't use anything that comes in Saturday. Could use some more calls, folks. Call 866-65-THINK with your zombie status update. Uh, the more theatrical you can make it, the better. And send me an email right away to let me know where you called from so I can find that call and dig it out of the rest of the calls in queue. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. You know, I've been thinking about this paleo lifestyle all week. In fact, I've been thinking about it for the last year and a half. But this last week, I started you know, kind of kicking around in my head a term to bring the reality of permaculture and paleo systems together, and I came up with paleo culture. It's probably not a good word because paleo culture probably means the culture of the paleos. Um, instead of perma, you know, maybe paleo permaculture is a better one, but uh, it's really long, you know. <laughs> uh, but to me, I, I think that paleo living was permaculture. It was a sustainable way to live. And, and I think one of the things I, I want to kind of talk to you about today is first, first thing is I, I want to clear up some things from the last two shows and the article I wrote on this and all of the emotional comments that came out of that and people that had to bring religion into it when I had no intention of bringing religion into it other than to say, please, can we not do that? Um, but I had people really upset because like, I can't believe you said not to eat wheat. Well, I'm saying not to eat wheat. Uh, I'm saying if you want to live in an optimal health standpoint that you probably shouldn't eat wheat. Let me be completely clear about that, though. I'm saying you shouldn't eat it as a staple in your diet for a significant portion of calories. What I tried to say to, to, to explain this back when I did it before was if I go out to a nice steakhouse, especially when I'm traveling and I'm treating myself and they throw down a nice piece of bread with some garlic butter, I'm going to have a piece. And I don't think that's going to harm us. And I don't think, unless you have a, a real gluten intolerance, that there's any problem with eating some wheat or some corn or some rice or some barley once in a while. I've also pointed out I continue to drink beer. Now, it is a fermented product. I do believe that reduces the damage that many many things that, that can damage our body do. But when I say not to eat wheat, when I say not to eat barley, when I say that these, these it, when I give you my rule, and again, if you didn't hear the last show, my rule is human food, human food, and what I mean by that is food that is designed to be consumed by humans, that is for us to eat, tastes good in its natural state. In other words, I can pick it up off the ground, dust it off a little bit, and munch into it like an apple. An apple is human food. It tastes good the way that it is. For those of you that say, where does meat fit in there, may I remind you of things like beef tartare, biltong, and sashimi. Right? Uh, meat, uh, fish, fowl, all of that stuff tastes good in its natural state. Trust me, don't go doing it just to test it uh, unless you're really, really sure of your source. The reason we don't eat raw meat is due to health concerns, and it's not because the raw meat is dangerous for us. It's because what's in or on the raw meat it can be dangerous for us, especially since our systems are no longer accustomed to it, and we've stopped uh, we've stopped that part of our adaptation. All right, so I want you to understand. I've not become a food Nazi. I'm not going to be the guy that if I if I came over to have dinner at your house and you served spaghetti that night because you didn't know I was into the paleo thing would say, "Oh, I can't eat it." Or just make a big bowl of sauce. I guarantee you the sauce and meat, though, would outweigh the noodles. But I would sit down and eat it. I don't think I'm going to die from it. You know? I, so I'm not a freaking food Nazi. So I just wanted to kind of clear that up before we went on. The other thing I want to talk about to kind of set the stage today, though, is what is permaculture. Because I think that a lot of people are of a belief that permaculture is how to grow stuff in a better, sustainable, natural way. That's what permaculture is. That is a... That is like saying that a microchip is a computer. 
And a computer is a microchip. The, the two are related. One works with the other. But if we have just a microchip, it can't do what a computer can do. Right? And if we take the microchip away from the computer, well, we don't have a very functional computer. The two are interlaced, but the computer can be a calculator. The computer can be a research tool. The computer can be a writing tool. The computer can be a graphics design tool. The computer can be an audio or a video studio. Right? The computer can be an entertainment system. The computer is so much more than just a microchip. And even if we were to take any one of those and say a computer is a research tool, Well, it's still all these other component parts. And that's probably a better way to look at it because the food systems are very, very, very complex. And the research capabilities of a computer, when we tie it into the Internet and give it its own ecosystem, which is kind of what the Internet is for computers, it's the ecosystem for computers, then it becomes a very, very complex system. Uh, even things that seem simple are very, very complex. When we start to break them down into their component parts and say, well, what if we change this variable or that variable? So... What is permaculture then if it's not trees and plants and, and, and geese and ducks, right? Permaculture is really a methodology for whole systems design, encompassing all things for human existence. And some of these things would include things like energy, housing, economy, and capital, right? There's permaculture methodologies for breaking down, analyzing capital value both financial, intellectual, social. There's basically eight layers of permaculture capital, and several of them you would recognize is what we call capital right now on Wall Street. We don't throw that component away. Hopefully we figure out how to harness it and use it better than it's been used in the past. Or hopefully, more accurately, we do it in a way where people can understand it better so that everybody can participate. Right, if they choose to, so that people are choosing to or not to uh, participate in certain segments of society based on knowledge, not based on lack of knowledge. So th th that's what permaculture is, designing these things to intermesh together. And of course, food is a huge component of that because we all have to eat every day. So it's about the survival needs. In fact, that's why as a survivalist, I spend so much time talking to you about permaculture because the word literally means permanent culture. It is survivalism. It's just not individualist survivalism. And for those of you that get, you know, anything that involves more than three people you think is communism, it's not collectivist survivalism. It's community survival. Right? So community is your friend down the road. It's your guy you go, you know, beer drinking and deer hunting with. Community is the old lady at the end of the street. Community is all those kids you see getting on a school bus every day. It's not about taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots. It's about a system built on abundance so that a local community can have anatomy. Actually, permaculture, despite what many of the eco-hippies in the movement try to make it out to be, is the most capitalistic thing I've ever seen. There's three ethics in permaculture that, that are very important to understand because without those three ethics, then you don't understand anything about it. Ethic one, care of the earth. If we damage the earth, we have nothing left. We only have one, so we, we need to build systems in a way that give us what we need, but don't destroy the goose that's laying the golden eggs for us. Number two, care of people. Right. So if it harms people, it's not permaculture. Right. Now that doesn't. Now here's the thing. Understand that that means all people, producers and consumers. So if we harm the farmer by taking his land in some kind of collectivism and saying we're going we're to share with everybody, it's not permaculture. Permaculture requires individual property rights. Now, does that mean a bunch of eco-hippies can't get together, go to a hippie commune, and call it permaculture and be permaculture? They, Of course they can. And of course it is. Because they have collectively chosen to live that way. It also means that a guy like me can kind of be somewhat isolated up on my mountain and do permaculture there. It fits wherever it is as long as someone else doesn't try to tell you that you can't do it that way. But it does have to fit the three ethics. Care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus. And return of surplus is where the eco-hippies go nuts. They think return of surplus means I bust my ass for a year, I get a yield, and I should return that surplus by giving it to them. And it should be applied to all things. If I work my ass off and write a book, well, I shouldn't sell it for money. Uh, and if I, even if I am selling it for money, if the hippie 
makes an electronic version and starts circulating it, that's completely acceptable because he's returning the surplus. He's returning my surplus against my will, not respecting my rights. So I know this isn't the paleo-permaculture merge yet, but without setting those two sides of things for people to understand, what I mean when I talk about paleo and what permaculture really is, it would really be hard for me to do this episode with you and have you follow it. So I wanted to lay that groundwork, especially for those that haven't heard me speak about the subject in the past. So what I want to start out today, though, with is how did I come up with this belief that if I can't pick it up and eat it in its raw natural state that it's not human food. Well, it goes back to how I believe humans originally found food and figured out it was food in the first place. Uh, if you talk to you know people that work with indigenous cultures, when they go to a new area and they, they don't know the, the, the plant life, for instance, in that area, what they do is they watch the animals. And generally, kind of the, the, the rule of thumb that's in many cultures that have never spoken to each other is if you see an animal eat something, it doesn't mean you can eat it. It means maybe you can eat it. If you see two totally different species of animal eat that, it's highly probable that you can eat it. If you are a place where there's primates and a monkey or an ape eats it, it's highly probable that you can eat it. Those are kind of the rules. Two creatures or a primate. And then, we've never eaten it before, so maybe we'll eat just a little tiny bit of it after we've observed it being eaten. And the first thing is if it tastes bitter, it's really bitter or really tannic, the odds are it's going to have a toxin in it, and it's not suitable for food, at least in that form. It will have to be altered somewhere before I can eat it. So it goes immediately down the list. If it makes me ill or sick in any way, then it also it needs to be altered in some way to make it edible, if it's possible at all. It goes way down the list. If I pick it up and eat a little bit of it and it tastes good, and not only does it taste good, but I don't get sick, so I eat a little bit more the next day, and I still don't get sick, and then some other people try it in the band, and then it still tastes good to most people, and no one gets sick, and then we eat a little bit. Eventually, it becomes part of our staple diet. We integrate it with the things that we've already had. This is how, when a, when a, a hunter-gatherer culture moves across land, comes into a new place with new foods, they determine that either that or they talk to people that were already there and say, what do you eat? And if they're, they're you know, if it's a friendly uh, coexistence, they tell them. But the first people there did it that way. And it's pretty much the way that it is. And the only thing that can go wrong with that system is it's highly toxic. You eat it and you die. And guess what? All the people that watched you retch around on the ground and die of renal failure, they don't eat it. So that's how people started eating food. So I, I, I put myself back into this paleo landscape, and I see this paleo dude, you know, walking along, looking to club something over the head so he can eat high-quality protein, also trying to figure out what plants can I live off of. And he finds, you know, the predecessor of wild wheat, right, the original wheat. And it's a grass, but it's got this stuff in it. And you try to eat it, and the chaff chokes your throat. And even if you get the seeds out of the seed head and you crunch on that, it tastes like crap. Guess what? It's on the bottom of the list. Does that not mean that later maybe they figured out I could grind this stuff up and make a flour, right? And it has certain properties that make it suitable as a survival food because it stores well. Of course they figured this out eventually, but the diet was built around the things that we could eat. And then it's very, very interesting if we start to think about that. So if we start to think about all the crops that people talk about trying to grow in a small homestead are difficult to get enough of a yield to make it worth the time. We think about things like wheat and barley. And these things that are the, the least desirable, in my view, from a paleo person, um, take the most amount of effort for the lowest amount of return. But yet I can turn around and take one 4 by 10 foot bed and plant it full of a giant amaranth, and I can get a fairly large, if you want to call it that, a grain yield. I can do that with quinoa as well. Well, the interesting thing is both of those, once they're, once they're shaken out of their seed heads, you can pick up a handful of raw amaranth, chuck it in your mouth and eat it. It tastes quite good. I don't think it's, I still don't think it's the staple of your diet, but it has, it, it, everything that it, that's caloric intake is based far more on fats and proteins than carbohydrates. And what you find when people go to a high-carbohydrate state, there's a process called glycation, which produces a toxic substance in your body called an AGE, and then that actually goes down to two other substances that it can transform into. And when it transforms to either one of those two, I won't go deep into this today because I'm bringing a, a PhD on to talk about this next month, but those two are basically can be seen as plaques in the body and they're permanent and you never get rid of them. 
And that's when you keep the body exposed to a high glucose state. And that's why I'm so opposed to this as a staple in the diet. Again, I think if you throw some peanut butter on a piece of toast today and eat that, and that's an occasional event, I don't think it matters. I think it actually tastes quite good. Last night, <gasps> Jack ate some white potatoes. I ate like two pieces of them because I made some pot roast, and my wife was like, man, I want some real potatoes. So I, I took one big baking potato. I bought an individual potato. I don't even store white potatoes anymore because we don't use very many of them. I peeled it up, I cut it up, and I put it in there. Most of it was celery and carrot and sweet potato and some shiitake mushroom that I put there for myself. But, you know, hey, it's not going to kill you to eat a little bit of this. It's making it a dietary staple that's the most dangerous in my view. And to me, human beings would make their dietary staples based on the things that were easily acquirable, easily storable, and easily usable. And all these other adaptations were, as we depleted those food sources, then we had to figure out, how do I make an acorn not taste like crap? And by the way, in North America, it wasn't really that important until the late, uh, was it late 1800s, early 1900s when the chestnut blight hit. Do you know before the blight hit the chestnuts, it was one of the most common trees in America. And in the fall, farmers would, you know, go out with a wagon and a shovel and fill a wagon full of chestnuts to feed hogs and, and, and livestock. And now it's a prized, uh, crop. But a chestnut tastes a hell of a lot better than an acorn. So even this whole, you know, Indians living on acorns thing where that is again, it's a, it's a survival thing. It's when the other stuff's not there. So it's not that even the hunter-gatherer societies didn't eat this stuff. It's that they didn't eat it as their primary source of caloric intake. And the human body is actually designed to burn fat. So I'm going a little deeper into the paleo science than I really planned on today. But I want, I want really this to be understood. And, and you, can, you can argue it till you're blue in the face, but you can't change biochemistry. And again, I'm just going to let that go for the day. And if you, if you don't believe me, do me a favor. Hold your judgment until I bring Greg Ellis on. And then once he's on and explains everything, I'll get questions from you. We'll bring him back on to answer those questions. And just please keep an open mind into this as we go forward. So, but my big thing is when people say to me, you know, Jack, this whole paleo concept, especially those that are more, the more vegetative these people are oriented, the more closer to a vegan state, right? And I have to tell you, I don't understand vegans. I understand vegetarians. I don't understand vegans. A vegetarian is a person who may be, you know, lacto-ovarian. They'll eat some cheese and some milk and some eggs. Well, as soon as they do that, there's this litany of concerns biologically that go away, right? If, if you take an, if you took the, I guarantee you, if you took two groups of vegans on the exact same type of diet, the exact same body structure, and you you got one group to be open-minded, and they each ate one ounce of ground meat cooked a day, the, the group that ate the ground meat would be in so much better shape uh, at the end of six months. I believe cognitively, physically, a lot of the problems that vegans have go away. I don't, I'm not dissing you if you're a vegan. right? I'm not, I'm not putting you down. I'm telling you I don't understand your choice because it would be so easy to fix so many of the common problems. If you're a vegetarian eating potatoes and rice and wheat and soy, and you're also eating some eggs and cheese and milk, so that you provide the animal-based protein sources and you make those, and you, you've chosen that life, I, I'm not going to do it too. I, I still don't think it makes sense biochemically, but I respect it and I understand your choice based on the knowledge that you've taken and your choice in your life. But when we push that all out, I, I don't get it. So when I talk to people, the further they get to that first group, the one that I don't get, the more they have this argument, but meat's not sustainable. Uh, and my response is very simple. We're made of meat. So if meat's not sustainable, we're screwed. And the reality is that meat's highly sustainable. What's not sustainable is soybean fields, right? Oh, I can make an argument that a rice paddy's sustainable. I just had a great interview with a guy this week uh, from New Hampshire that explained how sustainable rice can be. So I can make a great argument for the sustainability of a rice paddy system. So maybe rice is somewhat sustainable, but it depends on how much rice we're trying to produce for how many people. And that system, that rice-based system, can also be an aquaculture-based system that's producing fish or shrimp, uh, freshwater shrimp, or can be producing things like yabbies, or can be producing things like eels, and it can be supporting aquatic wildlife like ducks or geese. Right, And it can be supporting other native species that are edible as well, or components of the whole system like frogs. So 
that system's a lot different. A square field growing soybeans is not sustainable. A huge grass prairie with perennial grasses being consumed by ruminants, giant large herbivores, is highly sustainable. And I want you to understand when it comes to soil building, and this is a permaculture thing, there's two primary types of soil building uh, activities. And there's only two. And wherever you are, you're looking at one or the other. In a savanna grassland, desert grassland, anything from very wet grassland to very dry grassland, you need the ruminants in there. You need the big cows or bison or buffalo or gazelles or deers or something in there because you have a bacterial-based soil. Right? And this is where a lot of people get into trouble when they have trouble converting land because you're trying to convert one to the other and grow things that don't really belong there, and it takes a lot of effort to make that change. Sometimes it's worth it, but you at least need to understand it. So it's a bacterial-based soil. The grass, the grasses only produce so much biomass. The, the biomass produced in a square meter of grassland compared to the biomass produced in a square meter of forest is a massive, massive differential. So we need the ruminants in there to constantly prune down the grass, chew it up, and crap it out. And that soil building that happens in those grasslands is bacterial-based. Right? It's not fungal-based. There's fungus there, no doubt, but it's not a fungus-based breakdown. It's a bacterial-based breakdown. It's a manure and grass bacterial-based soil. We go over to a forest, we have a much larger harvest every year of biomass, just the leaves that fall off an oak tree. If you've ever raked leaves in your backyard from one tree, if you have one big tree in your backyard, you know how much is there. Well, in a forest, we have little trees that don't make it to fall over. We have branches that self-prune. There is a massive amount of biomass in there, and a huge portion of that biomass is inedible. Right. So from an oak tree, we get uh, several different things that will fall off that oak tree. We get a branch and some twigs and stuff like that. That's largely inedible by anything except fungus, and as the fungus begin to break it down, worms in the soil. Okay, So it's fungal-based breakdown. We have leaves, same thing. There's not a lot of creatures out there eating oak leaves. right? And then we have larger branches and limbs that fall down. And then we have mast, and the mast is the acorn crop. Well, of the acorn crop, we have a cap, the little dealy whopper on top of it. That's inedible, and that goes to the ground, and it functions more like a woody substance. We have a shell of the acorn which is also inedible and not really eaten by anything. It becomes fungally broken down. And only that little heart of that acorn is actually consumed by something that defecates it. So there is a much smaller component of the forest system that's manural bacterial based and a much larger component in a savanna or grassland. So when we start looking at meat, we could say what, what went wrong. Well, a large part of what went wrong is, do you know we had the most sustainable meat system that's probably ever existed on planet Earth in North America. And it was only a few hundred years ago. They were called bison. There were 50 million bison, completely unmanaged, and there were 50 million of them. All the hunter-gatherers did was follow around and take what they needed. If man had actually seen the wisdom of that system and harnessed it, we could have had 150 million bison roaming around. There was one invention more than anything else that destroyed that system. It's barbed wire. And from there, everything starts to break down. So when we look at making meat sustainable on a piece of property, what we have to realize is that meat was originally sustainable through migration. All right? And we no longer have the capability to have migrational meat in North America. There are some really big rangelands, but they're, in, they're not in optimal places. All the optimal places have been turned into what? Cornfields and soy fields, and, all right? Uh, you know, barley and wheat, and that's what that's what the 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 primary land that used to be used by these grazers that had this bacterial-based soil has been transformed into. And the idea that we could reintroduce bison and breed them up to 50 billion million population again, 50 billion, that would be insane, a 50 million population is is very very reasonable. We could have done it by now if we had a place for them to go. There's no place for them to go. We have, you know, don't, do you think the farmer in Kansas wants the bison to return? You have to think about this. And when you go out into these places in the Midwest, you see these vast areas that have no farms on them. They're desolate and largely have been destroyed because the bison were removed. But, the, but they, they can't support the bison without the other area we've taken. So if we want to, to do a system, 
that emulates nature and makes a paleolithic style diet sustainable, we have to figure out how do we how do we emulate migration? And fortunately for us, we have this thing that weighs about three pounds between our ears. It's called a brain. And it's the most advanced brain of any species that we've encountered. I'm not saying that somewhere, someplace, there's not a more advanced species with a billion, billion galaxies. There probably is somewhere. But as far as we know, on this planet, we have the most advanced brain. So if we put that advanced brain to work, we can look at land and say, well, how much land do we need for paleo basis versus a carb-based lifestyle? The first thing we need to ask ourselves, well, then, is real simple, isn't it? How many people do we have to feed? Do I have a family of 12? You know, do I have the Waltons or do I have a family of two, a, a, a wife and a, and a husband? Do I have a family of three, one kid? You know, one to two children, kind of the optimal American family where we can take care of all the children, we can provide for all of their needs, we can give them attention. You know, and those with a big family, I'm not put it down, but there's a lot of advantages to small family units. So if, if that's what we have, then we, we, we need a lot less land than if we're trying to create the hippie commune with 20 hippies running around beating drums. And if you're a hippie beating a drum, I'm not putting you down. It's just a basic concept. If each person in the group, and you know, men you're looking at generally around a 3,000 calorie diet, uh, for, for a full grown, you know, 180, 200 pound active man, 3,000 calories is not that much. It's a very, um, uh, sustainable uh, caloric level. You don't get a lot heavier or a lot lighter. You stay well fed. Women, you're looking 24 to 26, maybe 2700, depending on your size calories. So if we have 20 people and half are women and half are men, and we you know roll the dice and call it 2800 calories, well, that's a lot more calories a day than two. So we have to start out with how many people that we have. Then we also have to ask ourselves, Beyond this piece of land that I'm going to manage, what sources of income can I create? Either from the land directly or with geographic freedom indirectly from something like being a computer programmer. Remember, permaculture is about the economy, the community, the energy, the housing, not just the potato. For God's sakes, it's not just about the potato. So if we have income, and I still say, but you know what? I want to live a very paleolithic permaculture-based lifestyle then that means that the first place that my money needs to go when I'm buying something I can't grow or provide for myself is as local as I possibly can make it. it. Let's say somewhere within my county at least. Ideally would be in my town or my neighborhood, but somewhere there. But if I have enough income created by my activities, and my activities you know, hit, hit the three ethics, they don't harm the earth, they don't harm people, and they create a surplus that I can return however I choose... It's still permaculture. So I have to look at my income sources. and I also want to look at who can I trade with locally. Is there someone out there that's doing something that, that, that I'm not or that can do? You know, maybe I really would like ducks in my system. I, I really would. And I'd like ducks for meat. But I don't have a pond big enough to support a large population of ducks. And meat ducks just don't make sense for me. Maybe chickens do. But if I can find the guy with the ducks, we can trade duck eggs for chicken eggs because they have different characteristics. Duck eggs are richer. They're, they, they, they have a, a different profile from a protein standpoint. Uh, they're quite useful. So maybe we do a little bit of that. But maybe a bigger thing is, you know, toward the end of my season when I don't want to feed the whole flock through the winter and I've got a bunch of my dual-purpose birds that have grown up to a full-size bird and are going to be harvested, and maybe they're not these big, giant meat chickens, but they're a meat source. So I go, okay, well, 20 years are not going to see December. You're going and you're being quartered up and frozen. Well, maybe four or five of those then go down to the duck guy and I take four or five of his ducks. And he's getting chickens and I'm getting ducks. And that's just one example. But we have to realize there are people we can trade with locally. Maybe you're very paleo, but you also have an optimal place to grow rice. And maybe you can grow 100 pounds of organic rice a year. Maybe you only need five because you don't eat very much of it. Well, they have 95 pounds to trade or sell with. Just because we're paleolithic in mentality doesn't mean that we have a hate. I'm not going to go start chopping rice down, for God's sakes. Those of you that think I've become that kind of food Nazi in the last 18 months, you're not listening, right? You're not understanding me. There's a place for these things. Without wheat and barley, where would my beer come from? God forbid that I would, you know, live in a world without beer. Uh, wasn't the movie Robin Hood that, uh, the Friar Tuck character said, this is for, the, this is a grain that, that the Lord has intended a higher purpose for. Let us learn today about beer or something like that, right? Um, so 
you know, there's these places for these other things, and we need to look at who we can trade with locally, and maybe we can grow something that we're not in love with, but is desirable and marketable, and someone who's growing something we really want can trade with us. We also have to look at our climate type. Do you know the colder and harsher the climate, the probably the better off you are to be uh, on a Paleolithic uh, lifestyle? Because it's, it's primarily built for, for large game. Because they can eat things you can't. I mean, this is the big thing. Grass is not a source of protein for human beings. You can dig it up and eat roots if you want to and get some protein yield out of there. Yeah, I get it. But that's not sustainable because now the root's gone. So the grass can't grow back. Because most of these grasses are perennial in nature, and they they reproduce and they re, re uh, regenerate from the root system left underground. You know that some of the native grasses in our Midwest have a root system over 12 feet deep. How drought resistant is a plant with a 12 not 12 feet in total length, 12 feet down from a single clump of grass, 12 feet down into the soil and subsoil. Imagine how much mineral it's mining from down there. Imagine how much more drought tolerant that is than a wheat that I plant today. But that can't be consumed. You can't go out there and chop it up and stick it in your beak and chew it up and get any kind of a real nutritional yield from it. But a cow, a goat, a deer, and, and a rabbit, and many other creatures can. And when they eat it, and they chew it to a certain level, and they get in kind of, that's, that's what I wanted for that piece, and they move on to another place... Guess what happens to it? It grows back. It grows back. So it's something we really have to think about um, when we come into our climate types. What are the regenerative things that I can do here? What are the things I can support myself and my animals with that will come back? We also have to ask what our food preferences are. Let's say you're a beef guy. I mean, you're all on this meat thing, but I mean, you're not into chicken or fish or rabbit or even goat, man, you want steak. Well, you're going to have to develop enough economy to purchase your beef in most instances. Now, if you had 10 acres and it was optimally set up, there was enough pasture there to work with. If I could take five of that and turn it into pasture, regenerative pasture, and I could put in um, a, a fence system. This would be expensive to do, but uh, where I have 10 half-acre paddocks, and I could probably take two cows a year, two cattle a year, two steers a year, up to slaughter, almost entirely free range with five acres that I'm giving to them. That's a lot to give up to two cows. But if I have a 100 acres, it's not very much at all. So it all depends on what your resources are. But for most of us, they're going to try to work from these, you know, one to five to ten acre homesteads. It's going to be kind of tough to really make beef the only protein source you're producing for yourself and produce all your own protein. You're going to have to go out and buy it. So it's either opening your mind to other protein sources or it's developing enough economy with permaculture to be self-sustaining. And again, that doesn't mean that you can't do something like program computers. It just means that you have to have it built up in an interweb-style way where if you lose one client, it's not like losing one job because then you're exposed. You have a line instead of a net. Um, you also have to ask yourself, can game play a role in the equation? If I can walk out with my 22 onto my own property every year and I can harvest enough squirrels to put together 14 meals that year, that's two weeks of protein that I actually have done nothing for. If I can pop a deer or two, let's say I can pop two deer off of my own property a year, uh, that's about, you get about, from a, a full grown deer, you get between 50 and 80 pounds, call it 60, right? So that's 120 pounds. That's a lot of meat. Right? And if, if I'm open to that and it's available, great. If I'm doing a three-acre suburban uh, permaculture system uh, in, in you know L.A. County or something like that, I'm probably not going to be able to do that component of it. So it's, it's all about what's available there. So, but the big thing is to ask the question. And maybe if you haven't picked the place yet, you want the answer to some of these questions to be yes. And maybe you want the answer to some of them to be no. Maybe you don't want game to pay, play a major role because the game then becomes a competitor for the stuff you're growing, right? If you move out into an area that's heavy with deer, it's probably also heavy with coyotes. Now you have predator issues with your poultry that if you were closer to a more urban environment, you'd probably have not none, but less. It's all up to you as an individual. We also have to look at our topography. Can you make five acres almost 100% sustainable even without kind of like a second job type thing 
with a paleo lifestyle. I believe if everything's perfect, yes. Can I do it with my five acres? No. The land is not laid out topographically the right way. I have too many places where my microclimate is almost constant shade, just to be blunt. My soil's not that great. Uh, I am hoping to get myself into a 25% self-sufficiency module with my homestead. And I can probably do better. I can probably get up around 35. 100% is absolutely almost, almost impossible. If I had five acres that laid relatively flat with a gentle slope and a south-orientated dwelling at the highest point on the land where I could use it for rain catchment, put in key point dams, blah, 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 all the way down, and put in two acres as pasture, put in a half-acre lake, I can make five acres sustainable. I have to have an optimal situation for that. And everything I, I go away from with, with topography uh, and climate and anything else, soil quality, etc., I need more to do less with. I need less. I mean, more. I need more. More land to be able to do uh, to, to be able to, to be able to make up the differential with. Um, the last one is what water resources do we have or not have? I have a well, so I basically have an unlimited supply of water. It's 690 feet deep. If the water ever stops coming out of that well, the whole county's dry forever, and we're out of water. Um, but I also need electricity to get that water out of the well, or I need to use solar, which is extremely and resource intensive to deal with the draw of a well pump pulling from that deep, uh, which is very, very nebulous to how much... how You can get it to work, right? But you can get it to work more like for a little bit, and, and then it's a long recharge time, right? If I put a generator in there, my, my self-sufficiency, as long as I have fuel for that generator. If I'm running the generator with well, wood gas... I can probably keep the, the water going, but I have to ask that question. If I had a, if I instead of a seasonal creek, I had a permanent creek and a reasonable sized pond on the property, I'd have a lot more to work with, wouldn't I? Especially from a growing of aquaculture system type thing. You know, and what are my soil types? My soil is mostly sand, silica, and gravel. So if I want water to be held anywhere, I have to do something like hugel culture. I have to line it. So it's not as simple as if I had a piece of property an hour south of me, pulling in an excavator, digging a hole, tamping it down, and that'll hold water. I don't have that type of soil. So does that mean that my place is a bad place? No, it just means that I have to look at doing things differently. And anytime you evaluate a piece of land for doing this with, these are the things you need to look at. I wish I knew everything I knew then, uh, now, back then, when I originally was looking for a place up here. I didn't know 50% of this stuff. Um, some of you that haven't bought yet, I'm trying to help you make better decisions when you do. Um, but let's look at some other things. Let's get some more direct approach stuff. One thing we need to do is ask ourselves, in our system, which annual and perennial crops do we want to use to support humans directly? So that means that if I grow broccoli, I'm probably going to eat it. right? And then maybe there's a yield of biomass from the broccoli that goes back to composting, but it, and maybe I have a, an animal that might eat the leaves of broccoli, but it's pretty much being grown for me. From a perennial standpoint, if I'm growing an apple tree, well, that apple is a great yield for me. It takes longer to get to, but it's a great yield for me. So what annual and perennial crops do we use to support ourselves? I think I'm not going to go much into that today because this show's already going way longer because this is such a complex subject that I'm so passionate about. Um, and I think we all know the type of things that we want to grow for ourselves. But the big thing with the permaculture system is we need to focus very, very heavily on the perennial. Whether it's filberts and hazelnuts, or whether it's blueberries and strawberries, or whether it's apples and pears, it doesn't matter what it is. We need to get as much of our yield for that as we can. And people that say, well, how paleo is an apple or a pear? Uh, I'll make it very, very simple for you. If you sit down and eat 14 apples and load your system with sugar, it's not. If you're eating an apple because you sliced it up in a green salad alongside a steak, it's, it's quite paleo. Fruit is very heavy in what we call fructose or fruit sugar. And some fruits are and some fruits are not. Uh, strawberries have very low caloric uh, value, but a very, very high nutritive value. So blueberries are somewhere in between the two. And then the apple has a relatively modest caloric value, but it's very, it's 100% fructose, right? So, when we eat that apple, we are getting a, a sugar yield, We're all, and it's immediately going to become glucose in our system. And there is some damaging effects of that, whether people want to accept it or not. But if it's mitigated with protein and fat, and it's not a consistent source of the majority of our calories, I believe it fits the whole formula for paleolithic lifestyle. 
So, but what's a better use of this apple tree? Instead of, if I have enough land to support a couple apple trees, and instead of these dwarf apple trees, I produce these big, giant canopy-style apple trees. My canopy layer, uh, overstory layer in my permaculture, long-term overstory uh, situation, well, then maybe I go out and I pick a certain number of apples for myself, but one tree can grow more apples than my family needs and probably more than I can sell and probably more than I can barter. So I have three or four of them. All I'm going to do is pick the low-hanging fruit. Maybe I get a little fruit picker on a pole that goes up another 10 feet, and I pick a certain amount of apples every year. Well, what can I do with the rest of those apples? I can let them fall to the ground, and I can put hogs on them. Maybe I only put hogs on them for a little while. Maybe I don't even run my own hogs. Maybe I have people come in, and I have a mixture of oak and apple tree, And maybe I'm a place where a neighbor finishes out their hogs. And I put it in an area, and those hogs are only there for a couple weeks to put on some final weight before they go to slaughter. Maybe those apples are just actually picked up and delivered to somebody for hogs. I don't know. It's, it's, now, in an ideal situation, I'd have a few hogs, and I'd run them under there to finish them myself for the year. Because then there's no transport. Right? It's a more efficient use. But if we, if we limit ourselves, we, we don't think about how to do this. Um, if we look at things like if we find a piece of land and it's primarily white oak, well, white oak, white oak, white oak acorn is a great feedstock. Red oak, not so much. The livestock tend to not like it. It's very, very tannic. White oak, you know, is more of a sweet oak. It's a lot less tannic. It's not going to cause any kind of toxicity issues, even when fed at high levels. And your animals are only going to eat as much of it they want. The problem is most white oaks bear very, very heavily one year and then very, very lightly the next year, and you can't always depend on it to follow a cycle. So the oaks are a great source of a yield. Now, if we can harvest and store some of that yield safely so that it doesn't rot and become infested with worms and weevils, we can then use that feed uh, as supplemental feed. Maybe we put it through a crusher right before we feed it, and we feed it to things, anything from hogs, which are great to finish on acorns, or chickens and turkeys. You know, wild turkeys get a lot of their caloric intake from acorns. You know, maybe we're, maybe we're going to make turkeys part of what we're going to do. We, we have to think about these systems and how they can support our livestock. If we're growing amaranth and we're taking some portion of the seed for our own personal use because it's a great fat and protein source, a very high quality fat and protein source, but it's not something we want to live on, right? But we may want to take a few pounds of it and cook with it or integrate it in other things. Maybe it's something we sprinkle on a salad. Actually, it's really good to do that with amaranth. Toast it a little bit and sprinkle it as you would sesame seeds on a salad. But maybe we don't need all the amaranth. You know, we, I could, if I plant golden giant, I get about a pound of seed per seed head. So maybe a lot of that can be fed to our chickens. They love it. Good for them. Maybe I can go and bring something in like sunflower with that. Now, I can also use that as, as something that I feed. But even in my amaranth, if I were taking 100% of the grain, let's say I only need a couple pounds, but I'm going to sell the rest of it as organically grown or permaculturally grown amaranth into my local community, well, I still have this huge plant. And all of the small leaves can be used to feed things like chickens uh, and, and definitely rabbits. Uh, if I have hogs or anything like that, they, they love that stuff. Right, so and even in that situation, I'm going to have a lot of my seed fall out of my head, and I'm going to have a, a, gar, a bed now, an area prepared that has a lot of amaranth seed in it. Well, maybe I don't want to grow amaranth for my next succession of crops, so now I run my chickens over there. They clean it up, and they also get a yield. So actually, paleo in permaculture, the two systems go very well together as long as we don't try to figure out, well, how am I going to grow 400 pounds of potatoes this year? As soon as I take that white starch component out of the system and put something else in there, I just have to open up my mind that what I'm growing may not be for me. Maybe it's for my rabbits. Maybe it's for my chickens. Maybe it's for my geese and what have you. And I think that we're going to have to understand, to do this right, we're going to have to use paddock shift systems. That means there's an expense of putting fencing or tractoring or something like that into the, into the situation. What I mean by tractoring, for those who don't know, is I, maybe I build a cage with an open bottom and I move it every day so that my chickens are put in a different place. Or with a paddock system, it's more I take five acres and I break it up into to maybe 10, uh, half acre, maybe 20 quarter acre sections. And I move my animals through the system because, like I said in the beginning, this, this whole thing, this whole planet of ours was designed for these animals to wander, to, to, to move. And they would never completely deplete a resource 
until we held them captive into an area. As soon as the resource began to dwindle just a little bit, they would move. Right? And maybe they didn't even, some of these animals don't migrate. Some of these animals might live in a square mile. But how many of us own a square mile to work with? Right? How many of us are willing to let that square mile be 100% natural? And then there's only so many of those animals that are going to stay there and many are going to wander through. One of the reasons I, as a hunter, I actually prefer the, the eastern woods to the western woods is in my eastern woods with my whitetails, my whitetails range over relatively small areas. By owning, controlling, or having access to a relatively small piece of land, I can have a pretty sustainable and dependable population of whitetails. If I go out west, yeah, elk are bigger and cooler and I like to shoot them, but I could have access to, to a thousand acres. And the entire time I'm hunting there, there might not be a single elk on that thousand acres, even if I'm in a high elk area. Because maybe they've decided they don't feel like being there right now. Where if I have a thousand acres and there's white-tailed deer in the air, I'm telling you, there's some deer on that thousand acres. Probably quite a few. So, we really have to think deeply in these situations about how we're going to recreate what's been taken away from nature. How can I recreate the fact that a bison might have started its year, you know, up near the Canadian border and ended its year in Texas? I can't completely do that. But by utilizing a paddock shift system, I can make a smaller piece of land do the work that a larger piece of land used. I can use that three pound thing between my ears. Some of the best sources of protein are what I want to wrap up today for your smaller landscapes. Chickens, ducks, geese, turkeys, small hog breeds, fish, and goats and sheep. I think that with that kind of, you know, if you've been dealt a hand of livestock, you can do a lot with that. I think one of the things we really need to look at if we want to be more sustainable from a protein standpoint is doing more and more with aquaculture, aquaponics, whatever you want to call it. Right? So if it's an aquaponic system built in a greenhouse with fish, great. If it's a pond, even better if you have a space for it. In an ideal situation, I would say you would want a piece of land where you could easily put in a minimum half to three-quarter acre pond. And one of the greatest things you could do is stock the hell out of that with channel catfish and put in some type of supplemental feed. And you could probably, with almost no effort at all on your part, create a sustainable fishery there. And if we start putting in some forage for the channel cats, and if we can do it in a way that makes it easy for them to actually breed within the system... And there's certain things that channel catfish need to be able to do that uh, because of how they breed in more of a they breed more in holes than in a flat bed system. Um, then we can actually have a system that's very very sustainable. If I put ducks and geese into that system, now I've got additional yields of eggs and meat and feathers, and 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 I've got a goose that will take care of my weeding, and I've got a duck that will take care of my slugs and snail problems. So I think we need to do a lot more with water. I think we need to do a lot more with surface water in America today. And those of you that are in states that have these water rights restrictions, I really feel for you, and that's why I wouldn't choose them for myself. And I think as you're evaluating a piece of land, the more that you can envision where you can create surface water and control water and keep water in the soil, even if it's not surface water, the better you'll do. But if we want sustainability here, we need to look at Asia. Um, Bill Mollison, I uh, remember one of his lectures, he said there's almost no mosquitoes in, in, uh, in Vietnam. Uh, there's one place he had visited, and there's water everywhere. And he couldn't understand at first why there were no mosquitoes. Well, it was because there were so many fish. He said literally if these people had a, a one-gallon hole in the ground that was holding water, they'd stick minnows in there. And then a month later, they'd be bigger minnows, and they could eat them. And they would fry minnows. I mean, he was. I don't. Sometimes with Bill, it's hard to tell whether he's joking or not. But I think whether so whether that was an extreme analogy or an extreme reality, I don't know. But I do know that a big part of what makes high density populations in rural Asia possible is that an aquaculture based system has a much greater yield per acre than a land-based system for a variety of reasons. One, because fish don't live in a, a 1G environment. They live in a sub-1G environment. In other words, a fish doesn't, a 10-pound fish doesn't weigh 10 pounds in the water. He weighs almost nothing. Floats. So he has to use a lot less energy that we would use just to remain standing up. So he can actually take the same amount of energy that a cow would use And the cow has to say, some portion of this energy is going to fuel my daily movement. 
Some, some portion of this, this, this food is going to pass through my body. Some portion is going to make milk for my calf. Uh, as some portion of this energy, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to just, you know, burn by breathing, but some portion of it, I'm actually going to have to burn just to maintain the fact that I'm a 700 pound animal and I want to stand up. Your basal metallic, metabolic rate is what we call it in human beings. If you just stand there, you're burning calories. Well, when we take a fish and we put him into, uh, you know, a pond, which is where he has to be to live, right? We can't have a fish on the land unless it's a snakehead. Um, and that fish is floating in the water. He has to do a lot of those things. Doesn't feed his, you know, doesn't have a calf he has to nurse or anything like that. Neither does a bull. Uh, he does have to move around. He does have to hunt and eat other, you know, uh, prey species of fish or what have you. But he has to use very little energy to just be there. And that, that deficit for the land-based creature means that I have to feed it a lot more to get the same meat yield. So I get a much higher yield in an aquaculture-based system. Additionally, when I grow stuff on the land, I have to grow up. And every, every foot that I go up with a plant, the more energy required to get it there. When I, with a pond, I can go depth. And I can grow things through the entire spectrum. Let's say it's a 12-foot pond. I have a 12-foot system that has much more complexity than a land-based system. So I think that if we wanted paleo or just sustainable um, with meat and protein being part of it, we need as much uh, water in the systems as we can get. The big thing I want to end today with, and I, I hope that I've really conveyed today heavily, and, and I don't know if I have enough, so I definitely will hit it here at the end. Sustainability is not an individual product. It's a community-based lifestyle. And again, this is not collective communism unless that's what you know. Here's the thing about communism, socialism, all those things. I have no problem with them as long as they're not done uh, by governments. If you want to be a communist, right, and you, you just want to be a communist, you say, we believe that everything within a community should be shared, share, share alike, everybody's equal. The lazy guy gets just as much as the hardworking guy. And you can get a bunch of your communist buddies together and you can go out and buy a piece of property. You can put the, 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 the hammer and the sickle flag up if you want to and you can sit on your little compound. And until you want me to pay for your communism, you can have all the communism you want. Right? So I, when I talk about community-based living, I'm not talking about communism. And again, unless that's what the piece of the community wants and goes ahead and does it. As long as they don't want the capitalist or the libertarian segment to pay for them, I don't care. The problem is usually they do. Uh, but those that don't, I have no problem with. So I don't want anybody to confuse what I'm talking about as being a form of collectivism. What I'm telling you is that if you think you're self-sufficient individually, you're probably full of shit. And, and, and you know, if you have a job, well, okay, we're done. Right? We're already done examining how self-sufficient you are. If you have your own business, like I do, and no one can possibly fire you, you're still not self-sufficient. I am in some way dependent upon the entire audience. If you guys stop listening, I stop having income. So I'm not self-sufficient. If you turn a light bulb on in your house, you're not self-sufficient. Well, I have solar panels and batteries. Did you build them yourself? Did you, did you harvest the silicon? You see what I'm saying? Right? So it's a natural state that human beings are community creatures. We build communities. That's what we do. And it, when we, the problem for many of us is when we start thinking about getting off grid, being sustainable, doing permaculture, having a homestead, we want to have this rugged view back to the pioneer days of America where we say, I can do it all on my own. Well, that's not the point, though. The point is for you to be able to do enough to provide for yourself and create a surplus that can be sold or traded with others to provide for the deficit in what you can't do. As much as it's great to be a renaissance man, right, and to have multidiscipline, to be a guy that can, a jack of all trades, everybody's going to have some things that they're better at than others and going to have some station in life that makes it more conducive to do certain things. You're going to create a surplus of something, a surplus of knowledge, a surplus of freaking filberts, a surplus of cows, a surplus of electronic products, a surplus. I don't know what your surplus is, but that surplus is how you fit into the rest of your community. And if we're going to get into a point where we're going to say we're going to build sustainability into our lives, and we're going to build self-sufficiency into our lives. I've said this before. You will never be 100% self-sufficient. But I believe that a community can be almost 100% self-sufficient. And maybe if it's 80%, that's better than most communities will ever do. 
And if they're trading with another community for that 20%, it, it starts to look like a hydra. And there's a lot more interconnectivity. And if, Austra you know, if, uh, if Argentina's beef yield isn't what we expected this year, we're not all paying double for steak. Or we're not all doing without steak. Or what have you. And, and there is a tremendous potential going forward to be more sustainable. The big reason I did this, though, and I want to make sure I give kudos to, uh, to Rob Wolf here. Um, I started looking yesterday, you know, is anybody talking about paleo permaculture? And I found a link on Paul Wheaton's forum, of all places, uh, to an interview that, that, uh, that Rob Wolf did. And, man, I, I kind of wish I didn't hear him talk before I did this because he and I say a lot of the same things And I'm not taking his material. That's just where the logic leads. But they're working with, I think, Freedom Gardens or something like that. And they're, they're, you know, the idea of putting gardens there. But of course, you know, I'm behind that. But I don't think that we can create this sustainable model just from gardening. I think we have to create this sustainable, sustainable model through community development, through more of a tribal type mentality. Where it, it's not a rigid structure that you're required to be in, but it's a loose structure where you determine how you want to fit in and how much you want to participate. And other people will reciprocate the same way, and people will form relationships within them. And I think there has to be a tremendous amount of that. Now, what Rob and I really agree with is that this can't be a government solution. This cannot be a top-down solution. Those, that is like the one thing I'm just stealing directly from him. Those were his words. This cannot be a top-down solution. That's to be a bottom-up movement. Well, that, that's what I've been meaning when I've been saying the entire time. We have to focus on us as individuals and what we can do. My concern is that I say that so often that some of you think that means that you're in a bubble. No, it means what we can do as individuals, and we need to be viral with that effect. Look what I've done. You can do the same thing. Oh, you know what? You actually could do so much more than me in this one area. Why don't I help you do that? And we'll trade resources. That's, that's the way we build a sustainable society going forward. And that is survivalism. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll finish up with this thought. I've said it before, but it's the best way I know to, to illustrate this point. If you said to me, Jack, come over to my house, and I want you to help me figure out all the ways we could get out of the house if there was a fire, well, I would be happy to do that, and it would probably be better to bring a firefighter over to do that. But I think I and the firefighter would both say, well, the first thing we need to do is what can we do, everything we can do to prevent a fire from happening in the first place. And then we need to do everything we can do that if a fire does happen, that it's contained and extinguished before it spreads. Then if it's going to spread, we need procedure to get out of the house. But it would make a hell of a lot more sense if we were building the house from the ground up to build it with fire retardant materials, as much steel and metal and ceramics as we can, so that if I went to your house and threw a monocloth cocktail through the window, the fire would basically burn the furniture and nothing more. That wouldn't mean that fire is no longer a danger at all, but it would be a much mitigated danger. The more we build communities that think this way, and I brought the paleo thing into it today, but again, it doesn't have to, the rice eater down the road is fine with me. Maybe he'll trade me some, you know, maybe when his chickens get to a point where they're not laying eggs anymore and he doesn't want to kill them, maybe he'll give me some chickens for some rice. I don't know. We need to build this mentality, this interwoven mentality. I'm just telling you that When you give me the objection that paleo doesn't work in these systems, I'm telling you the exact opposite. Paleo actually works a lot better. The fields I'm not dedicating to potatoes and corn can now be dedicating to grow in a perennial system which feeds livestock. I think that is an awesome way to start looking at things. And if we just understand how the migrational patterns of animals broke down, we can recreate them at a smaller level. And really, how much do we need in a year? The thing about protein, folks, is it's very, very high-quality nutrient. Uh, and, and so is the fat. And we need to not be afraid of fat. I'm not going to go back into a nutritional lesson. I'm going to wrap it up there. But I hope I've kind of opened your mind to a lot of things today. Uh, permaculture in a new light. Paleo in a new light. And an understanding that, look, folks, if you're going to go home tonight and you're going to eat rice and potatoes, I don't think it's a great idea biologically. But I'm not going to put you down for it. Sakes. Please don't misunderstand those two things. Warning, though, when I bring uh, Dr. Greg Ellis on, some of you guys might have blood shooting out of your eyes by the time he's done telling you some biological and uh, nutritional fact. Anyway, we'll hang on for that one. Remember, if you want to participate in the zombie show, get your call or your email in today. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. 
helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody else.